Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nader Erskine-Smith, and this is our first episode after a hiatus that lasted much longer than I had anticipated, beginning with the election, but we are officially back. Now, if you joined us for our last episode, you'd have heard the incomparable Cindy Blackstock discuss the critical need to fully and fairly compensate First Nations kids. I also discussed the issue with Minister Mark Miller, and so as we pick the Uncommons podcast back up more regularly for the sake of closure, listeners should know that that case is in the process of being settled with the federal government committing $40 billion both to compensate kids and families who suffer discrimination and to repair the system on a going forward basis. It will be the largest settlement in Canadian history. Now, Looking ahead, we have a number of episodes coming up, including with former BC Greens leader Andrew Weaver, Toronto Councillor Joe Cressy, and more. But on this episode, I'm joined by Minister Marcy Ian, and we discuss how and why she got into politics and where she's focused on making a difference. The first part of our conversation actually took place a few months ago, shortly after our election and before her appointment as the Minister for Women, Gender Equality, and Youth. So some of our conversation reflects a time just after the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. But, being the wonderful and generous person that she is, Marcy then joined me a second time after her appointment, so this episode comes in two parts. Now, before her turn to politics, Marcy was a very successful broadcast journalist for CTV, including, as many will know, as a co-host of the popular show The Social. She's won numerous awards for her work in journalism, including a Canadian Screen Award nomination, an African-Canadian Achievement Award, and a Canadian Radio and Television News Director's Award for her news series exploring the Underground Railroad titled Journey to Freedom. Over the course of our two conversations, I think we cover a lot of ground, from racial justice to conversion therapy to Marcy's life off script and her commitment to keep living out loud. Marcy, thanks so much for joining me. It's so good to be with you, Nate. There are so many things to talk about, but as a starting point, you have a very different political career arc to my own. We were just talking before I started recording about how, you know, I fought an open nomination, you were appointed, but you were appointed at a very strange time and you dropped a very fulfilling career and a career that many people would want to do this in the middle of a pandemic. How does one arrive at what is what some might conceive as a very bizarre decision, actually? Well, a couple of things there. Yes, I was appointed, as uh, was my colleague and friend, Yara Sachs. And part of that appointment was a lot, most of it was the fact that we were in a pandemic. And so at that time, we weren't having meetings. We weren't doing the things that we normally do. And so those appointments came about. So there's that. Personally, Nate, I had been a journalist with CTV for about 25 years. And my latest venture was being a co-host on a show called The Social. And so for people who aren't aware, a talk show, opinion-based talk show with five women, and we shared our personal life experiences. We talked about things that mattered in our country. We delved and went places where a lot of people wouldn't go and probably overshared more about our personal lives than most. George Floyd had just been killed and it wasn't just George Floyd, it was Ahmaud Arbery. People were marching in the streets in support of Black lives. And there I was as the only Black panelist on this show. And I really felt that my voice in particular mattered a lot at that time. And I wanted to make sure, Nate, that I was saying the right things and sharing my experiences. And it just got me thinking, you know, I I was 50 years old. I thought I had used my microphone well. I thought that I always had. I had talked openly about being a first in many aspects of my career as a Black woman and how that needed to change. And I talked about never having executives, bosses, presidents of broadcasts that were of color ever in a 25-year career. And what that meant that people of color, in particular Black people, weren't in C-suites in media, that there wasn't enough diversity, period, and that we were the storytellers. We were the connectors and storytellers and informants in a nation, and our newsrooms weren't representative of that. So I talked about a lot of things, but in particular, it was Black lives. It was George Floyd at this time. And I started thinking about how I could serve better. I always looked at my microphone as a method of service. And I was really thinking about that a lot. I just didn't know what it would look like. And I guess when you get to, you know, midlife, 
if that's what 50 is or beyond, you start thinking, well, hey, is this what I'm going to do? Is this what I'm going to keep doing? And then I was contacted some months later by the PMO and it didn't come out of the blue, Nate. I had you know, interviewed obviously the prime minister through the years, but in particular, several years back in January of 2016, and I know this is a long answer, but I'll keep telling the story anyway. In <laughs> January, January of 2016, there was a shooting at a high school in the Lash Saskatchewan called Dene High School. And I always thought to myself, I don't know whether I'm a great reporter because I get far too involved in stories, but I ended up getting involved in this one and reaching out to the school and asking how I could help in some way. And the person that did that along with me was Masai Jury of the Toronto Raptors. And it's a very long and winding story, but the point being that I contacted Katie Telford at the time. And I asked her whether it would be possible for somebody to meet with these kids who we were now bringing to Toronto. As Masai put it, we wanted to introduce them to something that was bigger than where they were, give them some different dreams. And so we planned something that included Ryerson, my alma mater, and games that the kids would go to and Indigenous leaders that they would meet. And the Prime Minister ended up meeting with those kids, talking to those kids in a private meeting. And so Katie knew a little bit about me and where my heart was. She reached out and I was asked if I might consider running and I couldn't say no right away. And I'm a pretty decisive person because politics, Nate, like I know you scratch your way. It's something I never considered it. If somebody said to me a couple of years ago, hey, this is where <laughs> you're going to be, right? And you're going to be hanging out with Nate talking about politics and you're going to be the member of parliament for Toronto Centre. I would have said, are you kidding me? Absolutely not. I'm probably going to be doing documentaries. But because of this particular time, I thought, this is it. It's about service. And then when it was Toronto Center, and it was the place where I was born, and it was the place where my parents got their start as immigrants from Trinidad, I thought, okay, this is full circle. This is full circle. I could possibly, possibly serve the people that welcomed my family, where my family story started. And that's how it all started. It was one of these I never thought I would, and I'm so glad I did. I like the way you describe using your voice, because when I get asked about getting involved in politics by younger Canadians, I say politics to me is the most important way to make a difference in other people's lives in a positive way. I, I truly believe that. But there are yeah. so many ways of making a positive difference and shaping conversations and changing minds. And as much as we like to think we are leaders in politics, and that is true to a degree, depending upon how we conduct ourselves, we don't see laws change until we see social change. And so having that microphone matters regardless of whether you're in politics. And you wrote, this is back in 2018, I guess, you had an interaction with the police and we, we can get into that too, but you wrote mm -hmm. an op-ed in The Globe and you said Canada is one of the most diverse countries in the world, but racism permeates every aspect of our society. And you said, if you are a person of color in Canada, you experience a profoundly different and sometimes troubling relationship with the law. I think, I think that's obviously true. And now you are in a role where you get to help shape that relationship mm -hmm. with the law. Yeah. And, and the thing is, Nate, what I was talking about is lived experience. And that's the thing. And to have diversity is one thing. But for me, the most important thing about having a diverse table is the lived experience. Because I can say at that table, listen, this is what happened to me. And if this happened to me, this is happening to everybody. This is happening to a lot of people. And they can't pick up a pen and write an op-ed. And they can't particularly pick up a microphone and speak to their experience. But I could and I did. And I'll continue to do that. I, I think it's really important because back to the George Floyd scenario, the questions that were coming at me were, but Marcy, do you really think something like that could happen here? And I said, okay, so let me share some stories with you. Because as Canadians, we are wonderful people. I love our country so much, but we point to the States a lot. And we point to the States and say, look what happens over there. Look at the racist issues. Look at Trump. How could he possibly get elected? And then I look at, say, the People's Party and hundreds of thousands of people voted for it. We really need to understand our challenges. And it's not until we understand them that we can move forward. And so it's shining that light. And that's what lived experience does. When you have people that come from different places and different circumstances, they can share. As you see the coming parliament, 
a minority parliament again, some opportunities potentially to, to work across the aisle. I know you've spoken about not caring who you work with, that you just want to get things done and, and, and work yeah. with folks from other parties if, it, if that's what it takes. I, I like that too. When, when you think of the coming session though, and, and using your voice, are there particular issues you have in mind and particular ways of, of influencing the agenda? So a couple of weeks ago, Nate, in Regent Park, there was a shooting and things had been pretty quiet. And going pretty well. Regent Park is one of the communities in my riding of Toronto Centre. This particular shooting, they're all hard, but this one hit differently. And it hit differently because the young man that was killed, Thane Murray, was a beacon of light in the community. There wasn't anybody who could say they didn't know him. They knew him. He greeted them. He worked in the community. He had just finished a degree in social work. He was the kind of kid, Nate, where parents would say, this is who you have to emulate. This is why you need to stay off the street and off the street corner and go to school and do all the things. So in the community, kids were thinking, if this can happen to someone like Thane, why do I even bother going along that straight and narrow path? Like, what's the use of even listening if this is going to happen to him? We talked about why I decided to run. And, and besides George Floyd, it was young people, you know, starting with my own kids, but other kids too. And and, and during the by-election, I can't tell you how many young people I met who said, we've never seen anybody who looked like us do this. We never had the opportunity to vote for anybody that looked like us or experienced things that we did do this. And so when I look at things that I want to help accomplish in Parliament, I look at things like the Black Entrepreneurship Program, and, and I want to see that continue but also support for the Black community, but in particular, young people and mentorship and supporting those community programs. There are so many people, Nate, that come out of Regent Park, Moss Park, St. Jamestown, and they have great careers. But if you go there on a Saturday morning, they're back. There are so many mentors who give of their own time. I'm thinking of Shoot for Peace right now and just other places where they say, hey, I'm a photographer, but I'm from Regent Park. So you know what? I'm going back and I'm going to hang out on the basketball court and see how many people want to learn photography. And I'm just going to teach them. And I'm going to give them something that keeps them busy. Or I'm going to be there if they need to be tutored in subjects after school. During the by-election, I was walking down, I think it was Parliament Street, and I came upon it was maybe a group of six kids and a guy that looked a little bit older. And I came to find out that he was a youth worker and he was helping kids with elevator pitches, Nate. He said, so we've worked on resumes, but now we're working on elevator pitches. So they started doing elevator pitches for me. I'd say, okay, <laughs> I'm, I am the manager at a McDonald's or I'm the manager of a retail store. Sell me on why I should hire and they started doing them. This is what I mean about mentorship. So to take those stories back and to make sure we create that kind of support, which is very grassroots, and that the money flows. And that's another thing. It's about following the money, right? Because sometimes they were the federal government and that money will go to the province and then get to the city. But it's about following those dollars and making sure, and I am so committed to that, that they get to organizations that are on the ground, that are grassroots, that are actually lifting young people up, lifting communities up. I do believe things start with our youth. And we forget a lot of times. We, we do, because we think, well, can they vote? Can they even vote for us? Would, and we need to focus more. We need to focus more on them. It does tap, in a way, into notions of reimagining public safety, because Biden very much pushed back against the defund the police language. But if you read his criminal justice proposals, he talks very much in his campaign, talked very much about supporting those grassroots community efforts and focusing on prevention. It really comes down to, I think you're right, community grassroots support and then yeah. po poverty reduction. I mean, the Canada Child Benefit is incredibly important. Continuing to increase the Canada Workers Benefit, I hope to see in this parliament. We'll see if we can find the money. I do too. And childcare too. Nate, and child care because too, exactly. how many, right? How many women weren't able to work or left their jobs to take care of their kids, right? At home. So that's another cog in the wheel that I really think will help. Prevention is the long-term solution unquestionably and community sports and poverty reduction unquestionably is I think the most important conversation we can have. But we do have a bill that will address mandatory minimum sentences, 
restore conditional sentencing and then reform our drug laws to make them more consistent with the evidence and to divert people out of the criminal justice system who, who ought not to be there. And, and that's all critically important, I think, to the agenda of equity in criminal justice as well. I absolutely agree. I have large communities of color and one of the largest urban indigenous communities in the country as well. And the numbers are indisputable. We see what's happened, mandatory minimums, but also that community support. I think that right now we're getting to kids too late. I do. I think if we are trying to get, you know, mentorship programs and bring them up a certain way, and we're doing that when they're in high school, it's way too late. We need these programs in place before. And the other part of this too, Nate, is people don't often connect the dots between kids getting into gangs, selling drugs, like all these are getting into trouble, all these things with the younger ages and the education system. And I know that that's not part of what we do as the federal government, but I, I really do think when kids don't see themselves in the things that they're studying, in curriculum, that they just feel that they're not part of society. They're just forgotten. And so it's a systemic thing. And this is what I mean. Like, like a kid who doesn't see themselves or isn't taught about their culture. I don't know about you. I didn't learn about Canadian Black culture at all. And that there are generations of Black who are Canadian. I didn't learn about any of that. I remember classes on American Black history and maybe a little bit of Indigenous history, but nothing like that. So if your kid's like that and you never see yourself, then you don't see yourself as part of society. And what do you do? You try to get power or find yourself in different ways. And, and that can sometimes lead to the wrong ways. I don't think we can underestimate the level of trauma that starts at young ages when people don't see themselves and they aren't represented well, because then they're always outsiders. And this is what I mean about getting them young, because there's a direct connection between that and the numbers that we see, the disproportionate numbers that we see in jails. And that kind of exclusion, also that line of thinking carries through throughout the criminal justice system. Because yes. if you think of it on the front end, unquestionably important that we ensure people are included and we lift people up in terms of social supports and, and community programming. But even through when, when someone has a run in with the law and, and say, I don't think drug possession should be an offense, but say it is theft, which is obviously should be against the law, then even there, okay, if it's a, a young offender, if it's someone who it's their first offense, if you look at it and you go, well, how are we going to deal with this in a way that is going to ensure that person continues to be reintegrated, included, and this is an aberration? Whereas too often the criminal justice system becomes a place that just pushes people outside of society and it becomes very hard, not only as a matter of fairness for the person involved, but also as a matter for public safety. Again, if we care about public safety, we want people to reintegrate. We want people to to avoid recidivism. We, we want people to be functioning members of society and, and for that to be an aberration. That idea of inclusion just carries through. It think, carries uh, right through. It carries right through. And I'm glad that you mentioned recidivism because that's just it. You look at those numbers and they're horrific too. Because once someone is in the system, the numbers bear out that they continue to be in that system. It's hard to get out once they're in. I said I was going to uh, lobby you a little bit on criminal justice. So <laughs> on the grassroots support and community support side, I think you're exactly right. But on the criminal justice reform side, we are eliminating some mandatory minimum sentences. For all the other mandatory minimum sentences that are much harder to address because they are for offenses that just are so abhorrent that we're not going to see them eliminated, I don't think. It would still be helpful, I think, to say in exceptional circumstances, the judge can still have discretion to depart from the mandatory minimum sentence, which is consistent with the Parliamentary Black Caucus's call. And then two, yes. on drug policy. So there are many challenges with the drug policies that we currently have on the books, not only the disproportionate effect of drug possession offenses for Black and Indigenous people, but also the opioid crisis that is taking thousands of, of lives and has been exacerbated by the pandemic and, and the isolation that people have felt and, and more. When you look at the police chief's call, you look at the call from public health experts, Cam H just out of their call. The prime minister has been so afraid of the word decriminalization because of the politics of it, I think. The evidence is overwhelming that we just have to remove the stigma. People who use drugs, they are not criminals. We should not treat them like criminals. They are either people who are using recreationally, in which case they're adults, they can, they can manage that use in some cases. And if they can't manage that use, if it's problematic use, then it's a health response. 
not a police response. And it gets back to that idea of, again, not defunding the police, but reimagining the role of our criminal justice system. It can't possibly be the case that where someone has a problem in their lives and they are turning to, whether it's a gambling addiction, an alcohol addiction, or a, a problematic substance use issue that is an, an illegal illicit substance, it can't possibly be that the right response is more cops, more judges, more, more criminal intervention. It's got to be a health response and a public health response. So that's my that's I my like lo- that's my lobbying. Yeah, I love your. I listen. I love it, and I. But I. I will say I like the word that you used, a reimagining, because I think you're right about that. I think we've got to do things differently, and I think that's what this pandemic has given us many lessons, and it's given us time to pause and reflect and understand. And you're right with regards to you know the opioid crisis and drugs and and everything else. People have been isolated during this time. Numbers are exponentially up with regards to use and and young people in particular. I was talking to Kim H just the other day, and their numbers are off the charts with regards to young people and who they're seeing and who who they're seeing an intake. So I think you're right. I think it's a reimagining. It's just what that looks like, but definitely a reimagining. And this time right here. This pandemic has given us time to look at that and understand that and maybe think about how we can do things differently. That notion of doing things differently. We've mm-hmm. had conversations about having kids and mm-hmm. can we learn lessons even as parliamentarians to yeah. continue to figure out the way we work as parliamentarians to make it fairer for people with young families so that we don't see people leave this job and particularly we see young women join this job. And we've talked about this before in Women's Caucus and and other caucuses, that we have an opportunity here to do parliament differently. And you make a really good point. I mean, we call it family friendly. I, I seem to think it's it would be great for mental health too. I think that we now can vote remotely. We have learned that we can we can be in the house virtually. Listen, I haven't done it yet because as you pointed out, I, I kind of came in during a pandemic. So my experience has been all virtual. But I very much look forward to seeing my colleagues and working with my colleagues in Ottawa. I'm just thinking about maybe a hybrid way of doing that. And for the reasons that you mentioned, you know, I don't know how many people know it, but I am without a partner and I have two kids and one of them is 10 years old and the other is 17. And I had to think a lot about that. I mean, that was the primary. If I didn't run that would have been the reason why, except for, you know, my girl in particular saying, mama, if not you, who, you know, go do this. That's what she said. In all her wisdom, mama, if not you, who is what Blaze said to me. And so I thought, okay, Blaze, you're very, very wise and, and I'll do this. But that's not to say that, you know, I'm not thinking about how this is going to work with my kids when we go back to parliament. And I'll tell you, there are a lot of good people, not just women, but people, because I see your kids when, you know, we have virtual meetings, I see your kids on your lap, Nate, and I know that they obviously mean a lot to you and you are so involved, you know, with the day to day that we, you talk about reimagining, we could do this differently. And not just for those reasons about connecting with family, but also constituents. And then, you know, environmentally, I think about the footprint with 338, right? 338 MPs going cross country. We could do it differently. And you mentioned it. So many people, I mean, will not run or even think about this job because they think, well, how could I possibly do it? I can't live in Ottawa. I can't do this. I have family. But my gosh, we would open the floodgates to some amazing candidates right across the board. And so, you know, again, that word reimagining, I I think about that and and want to work on that, frankly. So long as the objections aren't, well, but because this is the way we've always done it, that, that is the, that can't possibly be an answer anymore, even though it was an answer before the pandemic. That's not a good enough answer. So now the answers have to be, well, how do we best make this place function. Yes. And and make it more inclusive. Exactly. Exactly right. Now you you mentioned your kids. Kids are interesting because it, you don't want to run because of your kids, but you want to run because of your kids. Exactly. And, exactly. Uh, That's exactly it. Your son has come up in a more political way previously as well. And you are someone, we talk about using your voice, but you're someone whose voice I appreciate in part because despite the fact that we've come to politics in a different way, I very much value this idea of 
one ought not to be inhibited in what we say. We're there to hold the government accountable, to push our government to be better. We're there to make sure our government delivers on the promises we made to people. And when our government and the prime minister or ministers make mistakes, we are there to make sure we hold them accountable so the mistakes don't continue and the mistakes are rectified and remedied. And you had the opportunity as a journalist to use your voice in this way. You met with the prime minister and this is in the wake of the blackface scandal. And you said, how do I explain this to my son? Not many people have that opportunity, number one, but are going to be as blunt to the prime minister, Frank. It's refreshing to see that, I think. I don't know how to be any other way, Nate. I just kind of spit it out, right? But that, it was a real thing because everything kind of distills down to that, right? It's, okay, I'm a mom. This has happened. And I'm a mom who, you know, as a journalist would watch the news with my kids. I would foster that and be there to explain what was going on. They weren't shielded from a lot. So so Dash knew about blackface and Blaze certainly, most certainly did. And so that's why I asked that question because I want to be able to say to him, listen, I went straight to the horse's mouth. I actually had time with the prime minister and I asked a question on your behalf, Dash, you know, and his response is what I needed to hear. It, it was, you know, I'm sorry, I will do better. I was wrong. There was no beating around the bush and excuses. It was, I was wrong and I will do better. And, and that's, that, that meant a lot to me. It meant a lot to me. And that's why I, I said yes when he reached out because I knew who he was as, as a person. I knew what he stood for and nobody's perfect. Nobody is perfect, Nate. Me, listen, I'll be the first one to raise my hand, uh, me included. But to, to look into someone's eyes, and that means a lot to me too. This is why I like to sit down with people and, and have them talk to me and answer me in that way. I knew what I was getting myself into. I knew who I was going to be working with and for. And you have continued to raise your voice a little bit differently. And this is actually why I extended the invitation. I'm just restarting <laughs> the podcast, by the way. So you are officially my first guest for the, for the new Yay! part one. And, but the reason I reached out is because I, I saw in the midst of the campaign, it made me smile. You were in the middle of a debate and you get asked a question about the gay blood ban. And your answer is not to say, well, look, we've funded Canadian blood services with a little bit of money for research. And they've reduced from five years to one year. A gay man has to be celibate for one year. Okay, I get that seems wholly, wholly unreasonable, but that's what they've done. And that's progress. And you, you didn't even try to, to do this roundabout exercise of answering the question. You simply said, it's unacceptable. And I, I'm not going to defend that. And we have to do better. And, and I'm going to push them to do better. And, that, and that's that's the job. That's the job. That's that's the job. And I also know who I represent, right? I've got the village in my community. And, and even regardless, as a journalist, I remember the promises that were made in 2015. And so now we're in 2021 and we're still not there. How can I defend that? I mean, it's been six years. We've got to do better. And it's my job to push what matters to my community and frankly, to me forward. And so, no, I mean, I'm the first one to say, if someone asks me a question and I don't know the answer, my first response will be, I'm going to research that and I'm going to get back to you because I don't know everything, but I did know some background on that. And I knew how long it had been. And, and I thought, I, I just can't, I, I'm not going to defend it because it's, it, you know, is indefensible. I'm happy the prime minister was asked about it the next day. And he said that there would be announcement. And since then there has been, and there's been some opening of doors. There needs to be more, but doors have been opened. And the prime minister was true to his word and Canada Blood Services did make an announcement and is, is starting small, but hopefully that extends to right across the country. And I think it's our job. We have to call things out when we see them, Nate. I wasn't going to ask this, but it seems like necessary to ask this given where the, the way the conversation's <laughs> gone. And I will first tell you how I, because I got asked this last night, I do these uh, Thursday night lives on Facebook. You get asked all sorts of random questions, but I got, I got asked a question about the prime minister and the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And from my recollection from last night, I basically said, there's no justification. There's no good explanation for this. So I could tell you he went to an event Wednesday night. He made phone calls on Thursday. But the fact of the matter is that this day, this day that we created, deserves much better from the prime minister. 
And Mm -hmm. he is, as we all are, we are dignitaries that attend Remembrance Day and Senator, former Senator Murray Sinclair, he likened this day to Remembrance Day. He said, this is about making sure that residential schools, which we didn't learn about in school, are part of the national memory and that these injustices are part of the national memory and not having the prime minister attend events. It's frustrating and I think unacceptable. And he He's acknowledged that. He's acknowledged. Do you answer it better than (laughs) what was your answer? No, no, I don't answer it better, better than that. And frankly, haven't been asked that question. But I was at an event with Native Council Fire basically for the bulk of that day. Oh, Andrea's uh, great, so I did, that's 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 a great she, organization. I love Andrea so much. So we do we do a lot together, and I was just honored to be there. And it was basically like an almost all day event that we had down at Brickworks. And you know, I wasn't asked that question, Nate, but I have to tell you, I probably I would have answered it the same way that you did, and as the Prime Minister did. You said, "I regret it." I think people were hurt by that, and he acknowledges it. People were hurt by that. You know, they really were. And as you say, it is like Remembrance Day. And it was the first one. And this certainly will not happen again. But he has said he regrets it. And I'm sure deeply, deeply regrets it. The Assembly of First Nations National Chief, she commented on it, but she she did say that the Prime Minister and the government will ultimately be judged by our action on reconciliation. I think that's right. And our job fundamentally is to say, resolve the human rights tribunal case, make sure kids are fully compensated and fairly compensated, make sure we lift all clean water advisories. It's it's taken too long to and just keep pushing. The government has done so much. But just so, we, so we, our jobs to keep pushing and to keep pushing for our more job, ambition. Our job is to keep pushing. There were several doors that I knocked at, Nate, where people said to me, listen, if we don't get reconciliation right, nothing else matters. That's what that's what people said to me. Okay. And and this by and large was in Cabbage Town and, and other parts of the, where it was, if we don't get this right, nothing else matters. And I tend to agree. On that particular issue where we should work together going forward. There is an organization that actually Andrea and Native Fire are part of, TASC, which is the Coalition of Urban Indigenous Service Providers in Toronto. Throughout this pandemic, the federal government finally has started providing funding to Indigenous service organizations that are urban. Yeah, which, which is where most Indigenous people are, by the which way. Which is where most Indigenous people are. And, and, <laughs> and a overall, lot of people don't realize that. Exactly. Yeah. And overwhelmingly in Ontario, it's like 80% yes. of the population. Oh, yeah. Our goal should be, one, to continue to foster that relationship with TASC and and urban indigenous service organizations so that we're their voice in parliament but to ensure that that kind of federal funding becomes stable that would be a way we could really pursue reconciliation as urban mps on behalf of urban indigenous population in a, in a really meaningful way i think yes please let's work on that we haven't really had a chance to chat like this i know i feel like this should be uh we don't have to record all of them <laughs> but you know <laughs> I do that, you we know. We need to talk. We need to. We need to. Honestly, we need to hang out more and chat more and share ideas because yeah, yeah, we, I, we've got a lot. We've got a lot in common. There's a lot of work that we can do together, and I really look forward to it. You're bold, Nate, and I like bold. So this mm. is what interests me about where you are at in your career and and the turn to politics because you've got a book off script, living out loud, and the whole idea is that I read a teleprompter for most of my career. But this was all the stuff behind the scenes. And it got very, very personal, really personal. You start with a very scripted, you're a news anchor, you're reading a (laughs) teleprompter, but then you move to the social social. where it is very free form. It is your views. You are off script. And now you're now you are in a place where you have a choice. Right. Yeah. You have a choice where the whip's office and the house leader and the minister's offices, when they put legislation forward, they could put a canned script in your hand. They could give you the speech to read. They could say, here's your question in the House of Commons to ask the prime minister. We wrote it for you. Or you could do it all on your own. And you now have a choice. Mm-hmm. You, could, you could be off script or not. I've been a bit off script. <laughs> um, I've been a bit off script. Honestly. I like it. Uh, did I like you- it. Did you catch what I said in the house when Derek Chauvin ruling came down? I mean, I've been off script a lot about a lot of different issues and um, standing up for our communities in the short time that we had in the 43rd Parliament. And I look forward to being off script a lot more in the 44th. 
Mr. Speaker, he cried for his mother. He begged to breathe. A police officer's knee pressing on his neck. And minutes later, he was gone. And everybody knew his name, George Floyd. There were marches across the globe. A sea of people took to the streets chanting Black Lives Matter, demanding justice. And for anyone who ever questioned systemic racism, George Floyd was an answer. But even still, with video captured from the cell phone of a brave 17-year-old girl who chose to stop and record what the world would see, I wasn't sure what would happen. Would there be a guilty verdict? Yes, on all three counts. I wept, not tears of joy, but of relief and resolve. This is not an ending. It's a beginning. There is no joy. There is no complete justice. There is only work. And Mr. Speaker, we have much more to do. You just heard a clip of Marcy Ian speaking in the House of Commons on April 21st, 2021, in the wake of the criminal conviction of Derek Chauvin, the former cop who murdered George Floyd. Now, here's us picking up our conversation a few months after our first one, and after Marcy became the Honorable Marcy Ian. This is the first time... I have done this, but because you are now a minister, congratulations, by the way, it Thank made you, sense. Nate. It made, it just made sense to bring you back and ask a few questions in your new and much more important role. And I would also say really interesting because some of the conversations we were having have come to fruition and, and one being a hybrid parliament. And one of the first measures that we dealt with when we got back was making sure that that was in place, obviously for public health reasons. And I hope that's something that we are able to, in the interim between now and June, put more serious thought into making something like that permanent. Anyway, that's all to say welcome. (laughs) Thank you, Nate. It's good to be with you. And I love that I'm the first that you've had to do this with. So much has changed. I mean, I'm generally disorganized, but I was especially disorganized after the I do not believe that. I'm sorry. (laughs) I do not believe that. Mm -mm. At times, at times. You are now a minister. You are the minister of women and gender equality and youth. And a a number of different hats there, a number of different important responsibilities. It's probably just a lot of onboarding and new information coming at you and drinking from a fire hose. Have there been particularly interesting moments in the short period of time that you have been a minister? Yes, there's been onboarding, but I, I started running, literally put the running shoes on and started running as soon as it was announced because there were so many things happening. I mean, as we talked about, this this pandemic is not over. And for women who were fleeing violence, intimate partner violence, trying to get into shelters, managing shelter spaces, young people at the forefront of this, and my goodness, racialized Indigenous people at the forefront of that subgroup. And then I have the LGBTQ2S file as well. And there was so much happening on that, the least of which is conversion therapy. And that bill had been brought forward. What we didn't anticipate and got was the agreement on both sides of the floor, the unanimous agreement on both sides of the floor, which frankly was an amazing moment, Nate, where we had thought there'd be opposition and we were ready for it. There was unanimous consent. And since we talked, that happened and then it got royal assent. So that bill is now a law and that is huge huge, not just for the LGBTQ2S community, but its allies. And I cannot tell you how many personal stories I've heard in the last while, how important this is for so many people. And I'm proud we got it done. And the blood ban is the blood ban is next. We're, we're one step closer. We saw Canada Blood Services come out and recommend that this ban be eradicated. We're waiting on HEMA uh, and we'll see what happens. But I, I think we are we are one, two, three steps closer and it's going to get done and it should get done. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because we also touched on that when we spoke first. And Health Canada has moved very slowly, in my view, from when I was first elected in 2015. But as a December 15th, 2021, there's an application in from Health Canada to end the blood ban entirely and to follow what other countries have been doing for quite some time to assess risk, as opposed to just simply saying there's going to be a blanket ban on on one's sexual orientation. You mentioned conversion therapy and and we should hold on to those moments where there are there are those opportunities to work across the aisle. I, I sometimes think we we all actually 
turn inward and and say this is a team sport and and because that's an idea that's coming from the conservatives or that's an idea coming from the liberal party or the ndp we push back because we're we're members of different parties and so it was nice to see that kind of collaboration cooperation to advance that so quickly have you had challenges in your role so far or is it is it still too early you know what not great challenges so far the challenge for me is getting up to speed on everything and at the same time trying to implement what i think we need to do and and my suggestions and my plans. So it's a lot of learning and a lot of implementing at the same time and also building a team and building the right team. I don't necessarily need people that have been on the Hill for 20 years. I like the idea of, of bringing new ideas in and that means hiring people that haven't been doing certain jobs for years and years. I am determined to make this team fresh and visionary and creative because we've got a lot of challenges. And this is a ministry that has to work across every other ministry. There isn't a ministry that mine doesn't touch and isn't tasked through my mandate to work with. I I literally, through my mandate, am working with every other ministry. I saw that in the list. You have a supporting role. You have your own files, obviously. And and then supporting roles throughout. (laughs) Supporting roles up for almost every other ministry. Almost, really. Like, it really is. Whether, Whether, you know, it's defense and allegations there, or whether it's missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, so Indigenous services, whether it's housing for women and youth, whether it's gender-based violence and, and dealing with that with regards to finance. I mean, you you name it. I, I'm working with that ministry. We are. And then there are files outside of your mandate letter that you are just personally interested in. Last time we spoke about one of the reasons you got into politics, the principal reason, this idea of racial equality and racial justice. Yeah. And we now have, again, a bill tabled C5, which is intending to address this, at least in part, in the criminal justice system. I think we will be faced with a decision at some point at committee, hopefully, and we'll be pushed by hopefully liberals and NDP. I don't expect conservatives, but to to take the bill further. And so you will have an opportunity around the cabinet table to basically stand up and say, yeah, I think we should, I think we should do more. You will have opportunities in your role as you sit around the table outside of your mandate letter to push on the issues that you care about, including racial justice. You know how how I do that, and that's already happening, and it happened even before the cabinet table, Nate. It happened at stock take meetings. And the way that I deal with those things, and I think the best way to illustrate things, is real life. And that means talking about people, really, it doesn't take me long to talk about a couple of people that I've met in my own communities to say, so this is what happened to this person who was incarcerated because he, I don't know, was a possession case, has has not been able to find a job since. Like I just illustrate with real life scenarios because I think that's the best way. You know, let me tell you about Jamal. Let me tell you about Eric so that people at the cabinet table and beyond understand we're dealing with real lives. That this isn't just about words on a piece of paper. And this is about how this impacts not just one person, but families in general. And it does. And we know with C5, it is about equality. It is about equality. And when you look at who's in jail and you see the numbers, you see that there is a higher rate of Indigenous people, racialized people, Black people in particular, in our jails. Why is that? Why is that? And and do we believe in second chances? And it's about really looking at the crimes that we're talking about, too, because there are a lot of, I would say, scare tactics happening. You're going to let this person out of jail if this bill becomes law. This is who this is what you're going to do. You know, you should be scared. But it's it's really this is why it's important to illustrate with people, real people and what they've gone through and not just what they've gone through with their families have gone through because there's a cyclical effect. There's a cyclical impact if a breadwinner of a family or a young person in a family goes to jail. Every person in that family is impacted. It's never about one person. It's kind of the same way if a person in a family has gets sick or has cancer. It's never just about that person. It's about the family and it's about the community and the cyclical impact. It is that element of fear that conservatives typically trade on to say we need to be tough on crime and liberals are soft on crime. And we typically respond, I, th- I think, over time to say we're smart on crime. And, and that's all fine in terms of rote sort of slogans. But 
when you get down to it, when I spoke to Professor Dube at U of T, for example, who's a, one of the leading criminologists in this country, he emphasized public safety. He, he said, you know, if you have a disproportionate sentence and you are just focused on fake deterrence, we know deterrence doesn't work in this way, but if you just focus on retribution and, and punishing people and punishing people, by the time that they get out, you are putting communities at risk in a more serious way. And so it, we have to also think battle on the same ground that conservatives want to battle and, and talk about public safety. When we speak about over-incarceration, it's not only on the back end. C5 is important, don't get me wrong. And I hope you will improve it when there's an opportunity to improve it. But it's also, and you'll face this when we talk about the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's National Action Plan and the federal pathway, it's also about resources at the end of the day to ensure that we're lifting people out of poverty. We, we see the connection between poverty and health. We see the connection between poverty and criminal justice. We see the lack of opportunities when people are living in poverty and, and what results out of that. And so it really is going to come down to, I think, in your supporting role in many ways to, to be a voice to say it's about racial equality and, and that depends upon economic justice at the same time. So absolutely, uh, you, you got a lot the of work to in, do. <laughs> the two are intertwined, a ton of work to do, but it's good work. I, I mean, it's the kind of work that, that, got me here in the first place. I really do believe that I'm in a position to to make some sort of difference. And that's really all that I want to do. It's that kind of work where we, there are checks and balances. Y you can see quickly whether you're having an impact or not. It's not the kind of work where you might have to wait 15 years. This is the kind of work that I want that could have immediate or at least kind of immediate results, right? And it's the reason I'm here. It's the reason I'm here. And the youth file is really exciting too. I'm so excited. And how do you balance, and this gets to the ability to make a difference, but also to maintain your own sense of self and voice. Because we spoke last time, you've been very pointed in past conversations with the prime minister, public conversations with the prime minister before your time as a parliamentarian. And I valued that. I valued when you spoke up in the election against the blood ban and said we didn't do enough. And I think we need that kind of expression in our caucus, both privately and publicly. And that's important to be who you are in this role. But you are now a minister. And I also understand there's a much stronger sense of solidarity around that table than in our caucus, and rightfully so. So how do you balance the Marcy off-script living out loud with the Marcy, I want to make a difference cabinet minister. And how do you marry those two, which are at odds in some ways? So far, and, and oh my goodness, I, I hope my, my fellow ministers aren't tired of me <laughs> because I have, I have a lot to say. And I do feel that I'm, I'm bringing a different lens to things. So I've been able to be me so far and really bring some things to the table that matter and matter to communities and say, hey, you know, um, I've lived this or I've seen this or here's what I think. And I think uh, so far, so good. I mean, people have seemed to take what I've had to say to heart. I've seen certain things come to fruition just based on discussions that we've had. And so, so far, so good, Nate. Are you foreshadowing that I might be in trouble? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, at some point, are there you will foreshadowing? Be a are you foreshadowing that this could get <laughs> spicy? Is that what you're saying, Nate? I'm okay with that, but at some point, there will be a disagreement. And yes, my nature is to not fight, but um, stick to what I believe in. You know, so we'll see. Have I crossed that? that path, that bridge yet? I haven't. No, too short I've, a period of time. Yeah. Too short a period of time. So you're going to have to hit me up um, maybe in <laughs> six months or so, and we'll reconvene and we can have that discussion then. It, it is a constant conversation one has with oneself, I think, in this role, because you are a member of different teams in a way. You're a member of the team for Toronto Centre, you're a member of the Liberal team, but you also are there because of Liberal values, yes, but you have your own principles that you're bringing a bear and you want to walk out of that role having made a difference, but not having sacrificed your principles Compromised in order to make anything. that difference. Yeah, right? So absolutely. it is it's a constant negotiation with oneself in some ways. And it's a harder negotiation when you're a cabinet minister, I think at times, although you do have the prospect of making a, a much bigger difference. And uh, I wish you the best of luck in doing so. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. 
As we start this back up, if you like the show, please share it. Please leave us a positive review on your platform of choice. Shameless as always, I know. Now, I don't typically do this at the end of every episode, but nothing about this show tends to be typical. And since we talked about the importance of banning conversion therapy and defending the idea that people should be free to be who they are, here's a small story to share about a positive outcome for someone important in my own life. I first met Angela Swan when I was a first-year summer student at Airden Burles. I then went back as a second-year summer student. I went and articled there, and I got to know Angela, who was the resident expert academic at the firm on contract law, on all sorts of areas of law, conflict of laws and more, but really around contract law. She's published in the space. She is a preeminent expert in the space, been cited by the Supreme Court of Canada on contract law. When I first came to know Angela, actually, it was studying out of a textbook that she'd written when I was at Queen's Law, and it was published by John Swan. And when I was starting out at Aaron Burles, she was just in the midst of transitioning from John to Angela. For me, it was just incredible to get to know Angela for a few different reasons. One, her role mentoring young lawyers at the firm. I came to know Angela because I would sit in her office asking questions about the law and and learning so very much, but she would also have law students over at her house for dinner as, as a group. She would, of course, host sessions at the firm and, and teach us so many different things. But she's also one of the reasons I ended up going to do my Master of Laws at Oxford, because she'd done the program, and I saw in her someone who was able to straddle private practice, but also academia, and really contribute to, in a public interest kind of way, to the, to the law. I suppose is the best way I can put it. And all that's to say, at the same time, seeing her transition and to be who she truly is, to do it at a time in her life that it can't have been easy to do it at a firm, at a Bay Street culture. And Erdin Burles has been very welcoming, no doubt, but it can't have been easy. And she really forged a path, I think, in, in, in a way people can look to her as, a, as an example of someone who has shown us what it means to to be who you are and uh, it's really important to have role models like that and Angela very much is one of those role models and I wrote a nomination letter for her to receive the Order of Canada I was joined in that effort by deans of law schools and by judges and, and appellate judges and and so many very people who are much more accomplished than I am and and know Angela to be the force that she is. And earlier this month, all that's to say, she became a member of the Order of Canada for good reason, for her contributions to the law, for her role mentoring young people, and for showing us, I think really importantly, for being that role model in showing us that we all should be who we are and, and embrace who we are. All that's to say, thanks as always for joining me. We'll be back on a more regular schedule now. So until next time.